name is Anna and I would like to introduce the Latrobe panel for the evening. So Rolando is the co-editor of Senses of Cinema and he lectures in the Media and Cinema program at Latrobe University. Uh, Gabrielle Murray is Senior Lecturer in the Cinema Studies program at Latrobe University. Her research areas include screen violence, film, philosophy and aesthetics. And our chair for the evening is uh, Terry Waddell. She is Senior Lecturer in Media and Cinema Studies at Latrobe University and has taught and written widely on contemporary media, gender, myth and psychological approaches to screen texts. Uh, previous book publications include Wild Lives, Trickster, Place and Liminality on Screen, Mistakes, Archetype, Myth and Identity in Screen Fiction, Lounge Critic, The Couch Theorist Companion, and Cultural Expressions of Evil and Wickedness, Wrath, Sex, Crime. And she has three book chapters due for release later this year and next year. So tonight, Terry will look at highlights from a chapter in her book, Wild Lives, From the Slime to the Scream, Pigs, Whores, and Random Acts of Soiling Deadwood. So um, we will have an opportunity for a Q&A um, at the end of the session, but it is, uh, it's an intimate group, so I'm sure if you, if you wave your hands nicely, um, our, our chair will, or our panel will be happy to answer your questions. Um, I'm, I'm going to apologise in advance if we have a few latecomers. I'm sure uh, you saw the uh, gigantic cues um, as you came in. Unfortunately, they're not in here, but I think we have some Deadwood folk amidst the, uh, the Burton folk who will be busting to get in. So um, bear with us. Thank you. I've well, we've divided our uh, talk tonight into three sections. And as you can see up there, I'm going to talk about pigs and prostitution. Gabriel is going to talk about Deadwood in the context of the traditional Western. And Rolando will talk about Deadwood as an HBO product. Sort of. That's what I so thought I was going to talk about, but I ended up doing other things. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I'm going to show you a little clip in a minute, just about three minutes, from Stephen Ives and Ken Burns' documentary, The West. It's really interesting, and you, you actually see the Deadwood settlement. But just to give you a bit of background into the fictional Deadwood, um, the real Deadwood is set against the Black Hills, and it was a settlement in violation of the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, where there was a negotiation made with the Native Americans that uh, the Westerners would stay off their, their sacred Black Hills and it would be their hunting area and their spiritual site and in return they would not be persecuted by the um, Native Americans. However, when Custer moved in and, and his troops started finding little bits of gold, then miners started moving in and the treaty collapsed. And, and here you get settlements and Deadwood was one of those illegal lawless settlements. So I think we'll show uh, just a little bit of Ken Burns' clip. Dakota's most prized hunting ground. 
August 15, 1874. We've discovered a rich and beautiful country. We've been in and through the Black Hills, and I have the proud satisfaction of knowing that our explorations have exceeded the most sanguine expectations. And I have reached the hunter's highest round of fame. I've killed my grizzly. Custer's men fished, hunted, played baseball, and they found gold. Not a real bonanza, but enough to persuade them to line up shoulder to shoulder along the creek to try their luck at hand. More than enough to inspire wild-eyed stories in the press of pay dirt from the grassroots down. From every corner of the country, gold-hungry whites poured in. They would soon bang together a dozen mining camps. Deadwood, Blacktail, Golden Gate, and Custer City. But the miners' invasion violated the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, signed by the Lakota and the United States after years of costly warfare on the Northern Plains. In the treaty, the Lakota agreed to stop harassing travelers, raiding settlers, attacking army units. In exchange, the United States promised the Lakota that the Black Hills would be theirs forever. So many times the Indians were promised that they could keep the land, and so many times those promises were broken. I don't think they were naive. I think that the Indians uh, understood the, the uh, meaning of, of the treaties uh, and wanted very much to, to live by them. Uh, but many of the treaties came to nothing. And so the cumulative effect was one of distrust, betrayal. The whites who followed Custer's path into the Black Hills called it the Freedom Trail. The Lakota called it the Thieves' Road. Either way, it would lead to disaster. Sad. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I think in Deadwood, you don't see, there's a little bit in the first season, but you don't see a lot of the relationship between the Lakota and the um, the settlers. But in, in that shot there, you have a look at the, the thoroughfare of um, the main street. And I, I found this fascinating, almost as though this, this place of absolute filth is another character in the series. Um, David Milch, in his book Deadwood, Stories of the Black Hills, is a wonderful hardback uh, book he's got out about the series. He talks about, um, about, about the mud and the muck um, and the importance of it to, to the show. And Pete Dexter, in his novel on Deadwood, also talks about, about this as well. And it reminds me of Terence uh, Malick's version of the John Smith Pocahontas film, uh, The New World, in 2005, where he juxtaposes a very idealised um, Indian community with the colonisers 
who live in this kind of swamp of sludge and dirt and disease. It's a bit harsher than Deadwood, but, but there's similar um, comments on colonisation. So I'm going to start now talking about pigs and prostitutes. And to preface this, um, there's been some discussion about violence against women lately with the killer inside me, where the two female characters, played by Jessica Elber and Kate Hudson, get brutally punched to death by the lead psychopath, played by Casey Affleck. And, and you see a, a level of violence against women in Deadwood that's quite shocking as well. And I find it quite interesting. I think whenever you get a male character, in my experience of, of film and television, that um, is extremely violent toward women, it's very much to show the brutality of the protagonist, the, if you like, the evil of the person doing it. When you get male-to-male violence, there's an element, there can be an element of heroism in it. When you have male-to-female violence, that's very rarely, I think, if, if ever, the case. So there's a, there's a lot of explicit violence in Deadwood, and you're going to see that on the clips that we'll show later. So in, in this chapter I, I wrote on Deadwood, I absolutely loved writing it, and I loved watching it, and I dreamed about it all the time when I was working on it. I'll read you out a little bit of the first paragraph that will probably set up the things I was talking about and interested in. Once you're in the televisual viscera of Deadwood, HBO, 2004 to 6, it's really tough to get out. There's no sweeping planes or homilies or one-dimensional heroes to run to, only claustrophobic signs of decay, avarice and survival. This contemporary take on the Western, set in 1876, never misses an opportunity to attack the hubris of its cinematic ancestry. All pretensions to dominate the environment or render macho posturing heroic are called to account. The newly born South Dakota mining camp rises from a foundation of mud, feces, urine, semen, blood and human-animal carcasses often in the process of being devoured by pigs. Sludge and dust cling to clothing, skin and festering wounds. As the immaculately dressed madam, Joni Stubbs, strides through the camp, her dust-orange velvet coat and white ankle boots sink into the refuse. It's a double-edged image of civilization's desire to outgrow the muck of its birthing and Deadwood's damnation to a kind of postpartum liminality. The intermingling of soil and bodily wastes that form the newly born thoroughfares most clearly symbolise this eternal phase of becoming, arising from and falling to the primordial. As one imported prostitute announced on her arrival at Joni's newly opened Chez Amy Brothel, this whole place smells like shit. So I'll show you the slide of characters that I'll be talking about and I'm sure you're all pretty familiar with. There's Al. Isn't he gorgeous? <laughs> uh, he runs the, the gym salon and he was a real uh, character. Francis Walcott, I'm not sure, was so real. 
Um, Garrett Dillahunt also plays the character that kills Wild Bill Hickok. So he plays two different characters in the series. It's great to go back and watch him in both. Here he is killing the prostitute who thinks the whole place smells like shit. Uh, he's also George Hurst's agent who comes to scout uh, mining sites for Hurst. And he's a psychopath. And he's described by another of Deadwood's uh, macho highlights as a dangerous lay. And there's George Hurst, which I think is, is an amazing character in Deadwood. And he's a, you know, the wealthy miner, grandfather of Symphony's Liberation Army kidnappee, Patty Hurst, and of course William Randolph Hurst. And I've got a, a sequence of clips where uh, you find out why he's called the boy the earth talks to. There's Cy Tolliver, Power, Powers Booth, the owner of the Bella Union. I don't think he gets a good, a good opening up in Deadwood. I think his character was probably going to um, go forward a bit, but of course they didn't make a fourth series. And so I think he, he to my mind, remains a little two-dimensional. And then there's just these brief shots, and I'll talk about this later, of, of Mr Lee's caged Chinese women that are brought into Deadwood. You don't see a lot of this, but it's, it's quite horrific when you see it. There's Joni Stubbs, who works for Tolliver and has done since she was a child. And she wants to separate from Tolliver and open up her own brothel called the Chazani. And then there's Trixie. And she works for Gemin and she later leaves to work for Elma, who becomes the richest woman in Deadwood. There's something I want to show you. On the, there's a website here called Legends of America. And here you see the, the, the prostitutes and madams that worked in Deadwood. I know it's not very clear for you, but that, that's one of the, the madams there. And I'll just go down. But what I found fascinating about this site is that they advertise um, single women. They have eHarmony is advertised on this site <laughs> as well. Down the bottom there you see another one of Deadwood's prostitutes down here. There you go, sexy Australian singles. Um, date sexy Filipino women and that was another thing that was an eHarmony ad on this site of, <laughs> of Deadwood's working girls I just thought it was very strange oh that's to come later uh, I'll go back to this one alright so I want to talk about George Hurst because I'm interested in the relationship between the land women and pigs, because I think they all sort of flow into each other. Hurst sexes the land. He finds it very erotic. Um, and he describes his relationship to her. Um, I imagine she speaks to me, he says, still the earth, what's inside her, how to get it out. But it, with Hurst, it's kind of like rape, this relationship. Um, it's not lust or desire that drives Hurst, but um, the need for the colour. Or, or gold and control and a sort of an overpowering everything um, that makes him vulnerable. John Islet, who's a UK academic at Stirling in Scotland, he's written quite a bit about myth and the Western and he talks about the dominant paradigm in the Western where the undomesticated hero has put a displacement of the erotic and the libidinal, taken it from women and placed it onto the land so that the entrapment of women um, is not like the land at all. That's free and that's wild and you know, that's what's erotic. 
But I think Hurst develops his power by corrupting this erotic relationship through cruelty and a kind of a twistedness. And his encounters with women also mirror, I think, his relationship with the land. His appearance in Deadwood at the end of the second season and particularly in the third season, what it does when you watch all the way through is I think it only accentuates and cements an already existing association between the camp's degradation of women and exploitation of the land. So oppression and intimidation and brutality are byproducts of prostitution in Deadwood, the chief occupation of its more desperate women. And unwarranted violence toward the orphaned, soiled doves or sporting girls, I sort of borrowed that from Larry McMurtry's lonesome dove, um, of the Gem, Valley Union and Chazamie is a key feature of the series, of course. It distinguishes Deadwood from, and Gabriel might I want to comment on this a bit more from former images of prostitution in the Western. And I think the most violent I came across was Django of 1966. But of course, there's Lonesome Darwin, McCabe and Miller, and My Darling Clementine, and Stagecoach of the Unforgiven that have sporting girls in them. But the violence toward them is not nearly as strong, I think, as it is in Deadwood. Pales in comparison to the sadistic practices of Swearingen, Tolliver, Woolcott, Hurst, Mr. Lee, and Deadwood's. Lesser macho identities. So the link between the predictable misuse of um, women's bodies and the land by men, I think, is, is fairly obvious. It's interesting with Swearingen because he seems to acknowledge that although he's forced these women into prostitution, the women that come into his gym salon, he's also protecting them. And, and Milch writes in his book, every one of his whores comes from the orphanage where his mother left him. It looks as if he's subjugating them, but the truth is that he's also protecting them. So he becomes a very Janus faced character, of course, in many ways, and particularly towards the women. And two of, of we're going to see one of these scenes, two of Swearinger's most memorable blowjob scenes is the first where Dolly, uh, one of the gems, um, soil doves, it vigorously tries to bring him to orgasm, and the second where she actually gives up, having failed to master a pleasing technique. Uh, it's then he confesses to being abandoned in a brutal orphanage by his mother who left him to work as a prostitute and travel. Uh, Powers Booth, in Milch's book, also talks about a backstory he had, but one that we <coughs> never see, where he actually grew up in a brothel where his mother um, was working there. So that's, that fascinates me in relation to Tolliver and Swearingen. And it's sort of like they get their Oedipal revenge by uh, running their own brothels. So unable to control their mother's unruly sexuality or the troubled life that these women subjected them to, playing pimp allows them to transfer pent-up aggression onto their employees. In Swearingen's case, this role also allows him to protect these young women or girls in a way that he was never protected. So the gems whores, in fact, sort of become mother and child surrogates to these men. I think you could write a whole paper on that. Um, so the idea of bought sex as a license to dole out abuse is an ongoing metaphor for the treatment of the claimed earth. 
a form of libidinal attachment atypical of earlier Westerns. The enforced control and ownership of women's bodies isn't just suggested through prostitution, but it's also clearly acknowledged in the various incestuous father-daughter relationships that are alluded to and explicitly described throughout the series. So the girls become substitutes for the mothers who have died or who are not sexually pleasing to the fathers. And we can see this in the genteel Elma Garrett, who was given to her husband Brom by her father. And it's hinted that she had a, a sexual relationship with her father. And then Joni, in trying to comfort her in one stage, also then talks about how her father abused her sisters and gave them over to Tolliver. So you can see that this is a set up pattern. So the, the attempts to own daughters by fathers and the pimp daddies who purchase these girls from orphanages and personally break them into their new sex-serve cells sets up a perpetual cycle of male entitlement. Women, land and animals merge to become the property subject to men's will. Things to be soiled, devoured and trampled upon. And here we get to the pigs. So, Swearingen's attitude, Tolliver's pathological violence, and even Walcott's warped sexual impulses toward the whores that they think of as merchandise, seem benevolent compared to the sadistic treatment of Mr Lee's caged women that I showed you earlier. Filthy, clothed in rags, malnourished, competitively priced, they're a dime for sex with one of those women, and after death unceremoniously burned. Although these enslaved girls only appear in a few short scenes to highlight Tolliver and Hurst's moral bankruptcy and ruthless ambition to muscle in on Chinatown, they provide the most obvious link between sex women and the bestial that underlies Deadwood and Milch calls Deadwood his animal town. Now the link between women and pigs goes right back to Greek and Latin slang where porcus or porcellus were used to describe female genitalia. Uh, vaginas were associated with pigs in Greek comedy and prostitutes were referred to as pig merchants. Sadly, this attitude by some people toward women and pigs hasn't changed. Oh. So Gordon Ramsay had two sows, I don't know whether you know this story, that he called Trini and Susanna, which he killed and ate. And then he went on um, Denton's show and he described them. One's a bit of a skinny mini and the other's a sort of a fat bitch. It's, it's gobsmacking, isn't it? But it gets better, no, or worse. Unruffled by this, he goes on then to attack Tracy Grimshaw. And you can bring this clip up on YouTube and it's... I mean, I didn't want to show it because I was quite shocked by it. He did this uh, display, cooking display, and, and in, I think it was in Melbourne. And the middle of it, he showed this image of a woman on all fours with multiple breasts and a kind of pig face and a tail and alluded to it being Tracy Grimshaw. It was unbelievable that he could have done this. Um, and when he was interviewed on... Um, can say today, tonight, but it's not, it's a current affair, isn't it? Uh, he also insulted her there and she hit back and saying, he says it was a joke, well, not to me, really. he cares about me and I wonder how many people would laugh if they were effectively described as an old, ugly pig. 
So, pardon? People watching. Yeah, yeah. It's they, on YouTube. You can go into it, and they actually um, have taped when he first when he arrived in makeup. Has anybody seen this? When he arrived in makeup for that. Yeah, they are watching Deadwood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, this is the next thing they can get onto. Um, when uh, he was in makeup, from the time he walked through the studio, chatted with one of the journalists, and then went into his abusing women all the way along the trip. <laughs> A horrible man. Oedipal <laughs> revenge, you think. Um, but, but there's also an association with pigs and people that have gone further back, sort of, of course, abominations, um, a biblical vessels of sin, which you can read in Mark 5913. Uh, and in the light of Judaic dietary laws, unhygienic. Sort of yet within the ridicule and demeaning of pigs as greedy scavengers only fit to be devoured, um, there's also a closeness of pigs and humans, sort of the pale pink skin, the baby-like smoothness, the liking for the same kinds of food, they are large, unending appetites sometimes, and the way literature and film have endowed pigs with human qualities, and I'm sure you can think of your own examples, but Alice in Wonderland and Animal Farm and Babe and Charlotte's Web or a few. So the boundaries between pig and human are blurred. I think even more so when, con- it's a debate that's just come up actually since I wrote this, when considering contemporary debates on uh, xenotransplantation, transplantation uh, between species. So the transfer of pig tissue, organs and cells to human patients, for example. Now I didn't have a picture of Mr Wu, but you're going to see him on the clip and there he's flesh-eating pigs. The only other thing I can remember about flesh-eating pigs was one of the Hannibal Lecter films um, where they tried to feed him to the pigs, but of course he got away. So woos bloated hogs wallow in mud and they mingle with the squalor of the land and its assortment of human remains and animal wastes. And it contrasts with the settlers' pretension to rise above the stained soil in which they wallow. So in recognising themselves as wild and lawless, the men of Deadwood must elevate themselves by constructing something lower and even more uncivilised than they are upon which to stamp and stand. And this need to imagine themselves as superior to pigs, women and the land is of course built on a disowning or disavowal of their own bestiality and squalor. So, all these assorted meals that are tossed into the sty, that means people, that are tossed into the sty are inevitably converted into defecated matter by the pigs that enrich the soil and then enrich Deadwood's foundations. So not only are the townsfolk trampling through their own discarded bodily abject muck, they're also trampling on other people, <laughs> on themselves, on their past. So just as pigs you know, toss around in their dung to coat their skin and protect it from sunburn, the Deadwood citizenry sort of toss around in their own shit as well. And the other thing that I we were just talking about this earlier is the bacon rashes at uh, EB's diner. And you often see rancid bacon. It's often mentioned, you know, are they eating the pigs or not? Um, so it's not a great leap to factor in cannibalism here. Uh, it's, it's funny, there's one scene when a newcomer comes into Deadwood and he leads on the pigsty and he says, oh, bacon. And Swearingen says, mmm, might have a bit of a human aftertaste. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So the settlers not only tread on their own, but most probably devour their own through Farnham's rancid bacon. And there's a perpetual cycle then of death, rebirth, um, discussed earlier in relation to the land, and applied to the idea of flesh-eating pigs. So the flesh-eating pigs are fed to the humans as rancid bacon. And then those humans who might eat those pigs can, if they've done something really naughty, get fed to the pigs. And so then there's this cycle, this perpetual cycle of pigs and humans eating each other, which I find very interesting. So just, just to finish off, the divide between human and animal is really distorted in Deadwood. Uh, in all its impulsive behaviours, instinct for survival and procreations, killing, cannibalism and lack of self-reflection, Deadwood is an animal town, preoccupied with, as Swearingen says of Wu's pigs, belching up human remains. And we'll, we'll now see some clips uh, of these human remains and of the ill-treatment of the women. Tell me what to do. Either way, this comes out, but only have to do it once. What's it to be, Trixie? Fucking community. 
some fucking beating after my brother's fucking funeral. Smacks coming from every fucking angle. Still dizzy from the smack from the left. Here comes the smack from the right. Brain can't bounce around fast enough. Headache I fucking had for three fucking weeks. Fuck fathers in a mind if my fucking brother croaks. Ain't even my fucking brother. Fucking people take me in. I didn't ask him to fucking take me in. <laughs> fucking flopping like a fish on the dock. My brother the perch. <laughs> fucking fallen sickness. Let the old man beat you because he's sad. He has his load on. Did better in the orphanage. That fat ass Mrs. Anderson having turned out a fucking pimp. How was the funeral? Did you carry on? Disgrace yourself? No. Everyone was sad, I expect. But it was pretty, too. Shut up. You died of death? <laughs> Carrie's napping, I'll wake him. You need him. I'd like to see this young lady just now. All right. Doris? Where are the other girls? Mooning over a dress at that store. What is it? He's in a room with Doris. Oh, God. Why is he with Doris? I don't know. Why ain't he with Carrie? Carrie's napping. Can't imagine what... Carrie might have told Wilcott about Doris to make him want to fuck her. Maybe that she reports to Cy Tolliver to keep Walcott from bouncing doors off more walls? Look up from your fucking magazine, Maddie. I would like to see Carrie now. I'm going in there. No, you aren't. He ain't the type to be with two women. I never took his full history. I'm saying he ain't. What are we to do here, Carrie? Get rid of her. They'll let you. 
I suppose they will, but that won't dispose of the problem. What's the problem? I don't know. I can't say. I don't want you to have seen me. I don't care who killed her. She must have done something to you. I mean something different. I don't want to have been seen. Cut off my arm. I'm going in. Walls coming down. There'll be your wall soon. Ever since I was a child in Missouri, I've been down every hole I could find. Boy, the earth talks to. Yeah, I've told you that's what the Indians call me. Yes. Talks to you too, Francis. I know. Our time together, your hearing has stayed keen. But this gambler Tolliver, who was our agent for securing claims, has spoken to me about you. He says that you killed women prostitutes, yet he has disposed of the bodies for you. Well! When I was in Campeche, you wrote a letter on my behalf. To the Jefe de Policia. I am aware of Mr. Wolcott's difficulty. You will find me personally grateful for any adjustments you may make in his case. What did you think that was about? I didn't think about it. You were my agent in Mexico. You had many responsibilities. You asked me for the letter and I wrote it. As when the Earth talks to you, particularly, you never ask its reasons. I don't need to know why I'm lucky. What if the Earth talks to us to get us to arrange its amusements? That sounds like goddamn nonsense to me. Suppose to you, it whispers, you are king over me. I exist to flesh your will. Nonsense. And to me, there is no sin. It happened in Mexico, and now it's happened here.
we must end our connection. You understand that, Francis? Make a separate, you think fair, you know, our own equivalent. Does someone's spirit overtake you? Is that what you mean by the talk? No. Tells me where the color is, that's all it tells me. On that note, I'll hand it over to Gabriel. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. Um, and um, I, I, I'm actually having problems seeing, but um, I've, I was trying to choose some clips to show, and I have to say it's unbelievably difficult. So what I've done is just <coughs> chosen a couple of clips that come from the last, uh, the last disc of the first series, which is Sold Under Sin. Um, and as Terry said, I'm going to talk a little bit about the relationship between this film and the Western, uh, which Terry has uh, sort of touched on a bit as well. Um, but really just as a kind of visceral response to this, this amazing series. So, Deadwood, a hell of a place to make your fortune, but fortune comes with a price and some fortunes are better left unclaimed. In the late 1960s, it seemed that the Western might be all but dead, no longer enchanting its audience with those wide open spaces and its mythic tales of the settling of the American frontier. In 1969, we saw Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, a valiant attempt at retelling an ignoble tale of the death of the West, of the Western, its giving over to expansion, capitalism, civilization, born through political double-dealing, bloodshed and corruption. By the early 1970s, for an American society embattled in war in Southeast Asia and embattled at home, young and old, cleaved through conflict, by unrest, by anti-war demonstrations, student riots and the continued agitation of the Black Panthers and more Christian civil rights movements, the Western, with its stories birthed on the sequestering and pillaging and murdering of Americans' indigenous people in their land, lost its relevance. Westerns were from another place, another time, another space. They continued to be made in small numbers, but less as genre films and more as entities in their own rights. Tombstone, Unforgiven, John Mucha's Dead Man. But then there was Deadwood, and the settlement of the American frontier again became compelling. A mythic but dirty, filthy tale. A story wrought of blood, sex, death, and the addictive glimmer of gold shine. In its boldness, it's both operatic and baroque. The three series allowed the establishment of the actual place, as we saw in those early clips that Terry showed us. Deadwood, South Dakota, in the 1870s, land of the Sioux, 
the Black Hills, ripe with veins of gold, unaware of their waiting, waiting for plunder, of dead wood, of the forest raised, burned, sword, used to build, tents to houses, to homes, dead wood at the end of lawlessness, tottering between sovereignty and inevitable absorption. A world full of real historical people, harnessed for our concern and our pleasure, a bawling Calamity Jane, a woman for all seasons. The dandyish Wild Bill Hickok, murdered by a cowardly shot to his back, but surely a better way to finish up than a some kind of circus act. There is something of the swarthy, swaggering buccaneer about our swear engine, a driving force behind the town, who from his airy, the balcony of his precious gem, oversees Deadwood's working rituals, the buying, selling, drinking, fighting, fucking and rollicking progress, carving something out of this stinking, filthy sledge. Then there's our swear engine's righteous other, the simmering Seth Bullock, butting up against his power, his control, his strengths. Soul Star, Charlie Arda, Evie Farnham, they're all there in Deadwood. Somewhere between chaos, debauchery and progress, in mud and spuke, pig shit and rotting limbs, on the back of hard work and drudgery, on the edge of death and possibility, several things come to mind. And I'm sure you'll have several thousand more. But individualism, Seth Bullock, archetypal Western hero, throwing away his badge in disgust, brimming with moral indignation, with biblically inspired self-righteousness, but sideswiped by his own lust, his love. Warshaw told us the Western man always looks good. He has style, he knows how to die. Bullock's barely suppressed rage saps him of all grace. He marks a line in the sand every time he walks through the filth and the mud that counts as Deadwood's main thoroughfare. Eyes ablaze, poker straight, hands twitching at guns. The Western man is hot-wired to take up violence, to save the white woman, the community, the church, but he is forever tainted by his murderous deeds. He seeks redemption in death, wilderness or matrimony. Bullock lacks all the Westerners fine skill and control, making him prey to swear engine who plays with his propensity for violence, who is stunned by his weakness, cunt struck by the widow Garrish. But what swear engine and Bullock have in common is that they both draw people. And I'll have that first clip, please. You and I are going to talk. So you don't account for my preferences, Mr. Bullock? I will beat you here in the street. First grade thinking. My daughter is eight years beats her father in his feet. How better to condemn all of the deep and suspicion as to her role when her husband is violent death and widen suspicion to include yourself. Shoot cracks, Mr. Bullock. I know what's in the teal. Bullock, when young and incapable, now 
you see wrongs everywhere and bullying you feel called to remedy? Ten they do. New shooter coming out. The bully who oppressed your youth isn't at the table with us. Perhaps he's long dead. Hey, the point of view would view the present with more clarity. Perhaps you'd recognize that I'm not victimizing my daughter, but merely asking for a small portion of the ample proceeds from her veins. Seven out. Alma is hurt only in your particular view of things. Ten again, they do. And while I'll sign no guarantee not to return or against any future claim on her compassion, realize I do hate it here. And if you inhale and expel pure righteousness, my olfactors are keen to the smell of shit. Six, the point is six. Having heard all that and knowing, as you must, the injudiciousness of making an enemy of a man who could testify truthfully that five minutes before her marriage, he heard his daughter wish her prospective husband dead, and who won't shrink from lying as to what she admitted to him on his arrival in this cesspool, as to her complicity in her husband's murder. <coughs> I suppose you'd best take your swing. Draw a map for anyone who wants to believe your fucking lies. Anyone who wants to put your daughter or her holdings in jeopardy, you show them how to get here. And you tell them, I'll be waiting. Solstar, Charlie Otter, Alma and her ward, Johnny Stubbs, Merrick the newspaper man, the crepey-skinned, sweaty-palmed mayor, participating in his obligatory spying, they are all drawn to Bullock's individualism, willing to unite behind him. They excuse his combustible violence, for they truly admire his self-righteousness. Capitalism. Outspot. No one scrubs a blood-stained floor like elsewhere engine. The most diligent of workers, a propensity crafted in some Dickensian workhouse, transposed from the old world to the new, abandoned by his mother, bought, sold, mercilessly beaten. The only reality apparent to him is that life is one vile fucking tireless task after another but you don't let it get to you. <laughs> Swear engine. He really has quite the Protestant work ethic, but there is gold at the end of his rainbow. No God. The only thing that seems real to him is work, power, money, and the continued maintenance of these possibilities, calculating and scamming, working his bar, his whores, their tricks, his dope, land, interest on everything. But what about Hearst? He exemplifies the extremes of corporate capitalism, the extremes we have all become more recently familiar with. Milch says that he had to rein in Ian McShane's intense physicality, so instead he gave swear engine language, language to rage by, language to ejaculate with. I remember when I first saw Al, he seemed to reek of bloodthirsty evilness, but I soon came to realise his driving force is clear-cut pragmatism. 
He kills because it needs to be done. And I'll have the second clip. satisfaction of the force's logistical needs. I hope you charge something for your service. Calvary and Camp, Doc. May I number you in the reception committee? From the Calvary and committee that receives Hi, Doc. Fucking magistrate, don't go back to Yangela Live. Now, I have to say, I think there's a whole essay in Peaches. <laughs> <laughs> Humanism, Al Swearingen, caught between his angels and demons. To the left, Trixie, with the heart of gold, of stone, a lion willing to take on Hurst. Trixie, the one Al can't sleep without. And to his right, the drunken, grave-robbing, corpse-probing doc, his gravelly voice bringing comfort to those sick of heart, soul and mind, for those suffering from the plague, Calamity Jane, her swollen liver almost bursting her trunk, and for Swear Engine, in his time of greatest need. But it is Swear Engine, protector of the gem and jewel, he who was unmanned by the cow eyes of a young boy, watched over by all his trusty wards in his hour of hardest labour, racked with fever, bruised and beaten, screaming out in pain and delirium, cocooned and soothed like a baby by Trixie and Jewel and Doc and Dan and Johnny, four leaking blood and piss and puffs, having finally passed that stone. <laughs> He is the one who brings us to the essence of humanism in his mercy. He releases all of the reverence demons. Praise be for the doc's grace, but give me the mercy of freedom. And I'll have the final clip. I beg you to win. Thy will be done. Amen.
And in the Western, you need to be good at everything. <laughs> Humanism, I just did that, sorry. Existentialism, just to conclude, is some kind of subjective struggle with the harshness and meaninglessness of a godless life, a life doomed to death. But the ecstatic function of violent confrontation is to forget death by confronting and risking death. The self is liberated in the ecstasy of this animated activity, to be liberated from the knowledge and fear of our inevitable fate and from the restraints of subjectivity and the vigorous activity of violent confrontation too many to name in Deadwood or the intimacy of sex, the intensity of Seth and Elmer's coupling or dance or song, an inebriated dock and the crippled jewel moving joyously across the gem's floor, the reverend's half-crazed leg thumping delight in those, as we can hear, tunes <laughs> being pumped out on the gem's piano, and of language both flowery and profane, a language of which, Milts says, profanity purges language of meaning. And this is why it's necessary to raise the English language down to the ground, down to the harshest syllables of profanity, is to break free. It is to experience a state of pure freedom, to arrive imaginatively at the condition of paradise on earth. Deadwood, it's a story for all times. It's a story of our times. And yes, we all have bloody thoughts. Thank you. I think we'll have Rolando, and, and then after Rolando, we'll open it up and, and share things. Um, I'm as well prepared than my colleagues. Um, so I scribbled notes um, as opposed to wrote anything that is in any way uh, logical or <laughs> chronological in order. Um, this is partly to do with uh, my initial intention was um, uh, to um, speak about um, uh, HBO. Um, there has been, for example, in television, a HBO effect, partly with the combined uh, sort of influence of The Sopranos and Deadwood coming so close together. Um, and I think it's those two shows in particular that have had um, a major influence on um, the nature of television, certainly not public public free-to-air television, but certainly on uh, pay TV. Um, what I was interested in with those shows in particular, but also The Wire, which is not HBO, um, but I think has real similarities to both Deadwood and uh, The Sopranos, was that there's they emerged at a certain time in that period of the, of the you know, 2004, 2001 or so, um, uh, a number of television uh, series which effectively were about um, the closing or the, or the um, disappearance of um, a certain kind of masculine empire. Uh, they're all about masculine worlds. And I don't mean to say that women don't have a crucial role to play in, um, in Deadwood or in The Sopranos or in... Um, the Wire and other series, but effectively they're really looking at a particular kind of malehood or masculinity or uh, gender, male gender dynamics, which in effect um, 
they see as something that is kind of you know um, being displaced and uh, it almost shows a kind of um, allegaic um, in the sense that of their treatment of the themes. Um, what I was going to do in, in time was counterpose them to the emergence of the whole vampire genre um, on pay TV and all those shows because I think that's what's happening. They should, in one sense, they're setting up a dynamic and an answer to, or not an answer to, but a contrast to the whole rise of the empiric kind of archetype because I think actually what, what the vampiric archetype represents, probably beginning with Buffy, was actually the feminization of certain kind of culture and the displacement of certain kind of malehood. Um, and so that's what I was kind of wanting to talk about initially. And then I thought, no, 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 this is far too big and so forth and so on. So I sat down to watch uh, Deadwood again, or rather, um, to be honest, not to, to sit down and watch it again, but to really see it for the first time because it was not a show that effectively um, uh, gripped me when it was first on. So I, I saw it in snatches. I was much more impressed with The Sopranos. So I was giving my attention to that much more than, uh, than Deadwood. So uh, last week was virtually devoted to watching three seasons of <laughs> Deadwood. <laughs> and effectively, this is what, what struck me. So they're really my impressions of seeing it in its totality. Um, one of the things was, that struck me was uh, how much Deadwood owes to theatre. And I don't mean by that that it is theatrical or stagey, not at all. I think one of the things it taps into is a whole tradition of, uh, of um, a drama, uh, in particular Jacobean drama. All the melodrama and the bloodlust almost derives from Jacobean drama. The slitting of throats, the emphasis on blood, the carnality of it all is all there if you, if you read you know, Ford or Webster, the plays of Ford or Webster. So that was one aspect that I thought, OK, I see what they're doing. They're actually drawing back into tradition. The other one, of course, inevitably is uh, uh, Shakespeare. And it struck me because the series progresses, progress, and I was trying to work out what they've done with the dialogue of Deadwood. I realised how the soliloquy was actually being remodelled by Deadwood, uh, the Shakespearean soliloquy, and that it became increasingly uh, prominent in, um, in the series. The key figure for me in all of this is um, E.B. Bar uh, e. Farnham. I think he's one of the most wonderful characters, <laughs> complex characters, worthy of uh, Shakespearean dimensions. And if one fully understands him, I think you get to the heart of what it, Deadwood is actually trying to do with both the dialogue uh, and the use of kind of theatrical troops or traits uh, within it. Um, he is partly the Shakespearean fool, but he, if you listen closely, uh, especially in season three, he has some of the most eloquent miniature soliloquies I've heard uh, which are comparable to poetry, comparable to, to Shakespeare. In fact, I think one of the characters stumbling on him as he's talking to himself says, ah, you quote Wordsworth. And he says, Wordsworth? And um, <laughs> she says, yes, you've just quoted a line from Wordsworth. And he says, madam, these are words of my own invention. Um, and uh, his soliloquies, he's probably the character from the very beginning of season, season one who had the capacity, all the, the scriptwriters gave over to him the notion of a soliloquy uh, and continued and it uh, progressed further and uh, further. Um, soliloquy works in two ways in Deadwood. Um, uh, it's both the way in which it, um, a character can actually comment on, on, um, on the events that are occurring 
and also expressed there, obviously, the more conventional sense of the soliloquy is um, produced their interior uh, thoughts. And Deadwood is completely show poised between those two things, the exteriority, what is happening visually, publicly in the main street, uh, and what is happening, happening uh, privately. Um, by season three, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll remember that um, our Swerogen is given an Indian head in a box. And the reason he's given that is because that will allow him to produce his own soliloquies. So he can talk to the head. It's a trope or a trick. He should be talking to himself. It's effectively the, the, the equivalent, that head, of uh, Yorick's skull in Hamlet, where Hamlet has the capacity, by looking at the skull, to pontificate about the world um, and just philosophize. And what Al Swerogen is doing effectively with the use of the Indian head is, is that, is the exteriorization of internal thoughts. Um, so that, all that aspect actually leads not only to Jacobean Shakespearean, but actually the Baroque uh, theatre as well, because the show is really aware that all, um, the world is a stage, and that was the premise of Baroque theatre. And this is why I think one of the reasons why I think uh, Deadwood's uh, main strip, um, the, uh, the, the thoroughfare, is so crucial because that is the public dimension of the drama. And then there is another uh, dimension to the drama. And that is effectively the coming of the balconies in the show, which architecturally gain prominence until you get to the third season and you just realise, oh my God, they've got a majestic kind of importance now. Um, Swearingen on his balcony. He looks down on the town. There's always a way in which what is occurring is double-leveled. There's the events as they occur, and then there is their interpretation um, by the characters. So there is both the event and its commentary internal to the, to the show, which is what Baroque theatre tended to do. It had that sort of duality, um, partly because Baroque theatre was so much about, is this really happening or is this illusion? What is reality and what is illusion? You'll notice that in season three, the, the show becomes progressively more and more maddened. There's almost insanity creeping in. A man talking to an Indian head, people babbling away. And that's part of Baroque theatre, that fine line that the audience has put in about, oh, what is the status of all of this? Um, uh, Swearingen on his balcony. Um, by the time you get to season three, I think the majority of the, show, of the episodes will um, conclude or end on Swerogen, and the majority of them will conclude or end Swerogen on his balcony, as if they're punctuation points, and he's looking at something. He's looking at a world down there, and every character in it has their allotted role to play. They're almost uh, characters, or should I say, figures in a play, um, and, it's th and it's his world and he's looking at it. The point in which that world is contestable to him it's the point in which somebody gets their own balcony. And that person creates it for themselves by smashing down the wall of a hotel he purposely built so that he could have the power to smash a wall, walk out, and say to Swerogen, I have my own balcony, I have my own view of this world, I have my own power. And so much of that third, episode, that third series is about Swerogen and Hearst looking at one another, <laughs> looking at the events down the town, and almost comparing notes. Um, so they have that sort of uh, dynamic. The third person with the balcony is uh, uh, Tolliver. But Tolliver's a curious character because, in fact, I think his story really ends in impotence. He's, in a, in a Freudian sense, a little balcony. 
Um, I'll, explain, I'll explain why. Um, uh, there's a crucial um, way in which the story of Swerigen ends, and that is he slits the throat of the prostitute. And it's the pool of blood. It's the last real um, act of violence in, uh, in Deadwood, and it's the most symbolic of acts in, in Deadwood. Um, the only other act that precedes that uh, violence will be Tolliver knifing Leon and letting him bleed, and there'll be a pool of blood, as there was a pool of blood for the prostitute's uh, death. It's actually that, that, um, that act by uh, Tolliver is an act of rage and anger, and therefore it goes nowhere. It is not productive. Violence needs to be transformed for it to have symbolic meaning. He's just killed somebody for his own sake. It's an act of impotence. Um, it's, it's interesting that it follows the death of the prostitute and it's Swergen's last major act of cutting the throat. Um, effectively, what has happened there is you've got a situation set up where um, Trixie is supposed to die. Hurst will, will ask that somebody, that she be punished. In other words, you need a sacrifice because it's not about the women, it's about the pact, about the progress of this town that has to be sealed by blood because the whole show has been about blood. And um, Swearingen will have to take that on board and do it himself and he slits her throat and there's a pool of blood. She is effectively the sacrificial lamb and it's, it, it takes you back to Greek tragedy. Every founding of a town or a city in mythology requires a sacrifice. Somebody blood, somebody's blood must be spilt. This is a show about the founding of a town, the founding of 20th century America, the coming of something in the future. It has to be sealed with the, with the, with the death of a sacrificial um, victim and it becomes a prostitute, interestingly enough, although the show is quite circular because it doesn't quite start, but it effectively starts the moment in which um, a prostitute takes a beating and it will close with the death of another prostitute. The first prostitute to take a beating is Trixie. Trixie, by season three, the final moment, she is supposed to die. She is then replaced by Jen, I think is the name of the young prostitute, uh, that is put in her place. So there's a trick effectively uh, taking place. Swerigen doesn't kill out of anger. He knows the symbolic role of what he's doing. He knows this is the sacrifice needed to keep Hurst at bay, to seal the pact between them, to make the town progress and so forth and so on. Um, so it is not out of anger, it's not out of hatred, it is actually a social act, which is how the ancient Greeks understood the sacrifice. It is not one of anger, it is uh, something to be sacrificed to the deities, to appease the gods, to bring on good fortune and so forth and so on. Um, so that's why those, those two acts, with Tolliver is effectively somebody who's been sidelined by Hurst, so his rage is about that. The pact has been made between um, Swearingen and, uh, um, uh, and Hurst. Um, uh, a lot of the show has, has this remarkable kind of symbolic um, level to it, um, uh, which is um, uh, not so strange, I, I, I guess, but... Um, I was really um, looking at it thinking, oh, this is going to be one of those kinds of um, revisionist westerns uh, where the genre in the late 60s 
uh, Gabriel spoke about it a little bit with films like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the Cold Pepper Carroll Company and so forth, started to look back at the West and try to authenticate it historically. In other words, to, to say, no, we refute the genre's progress up until this point. Um, it was only part, it was too mythological. Um, uh, so I thought, okay, this is what I'm, I'm um, going to have to sit through for the next 36 hours or whatnot is, you know, authentication <laughs> of the West. Um, uh, but it turned out to be both that, but also to be this uh, remarkable show which is extremely self-conscious about what it was doing and uh, drawing as many elements as possible from uh, different theatrical traditions to bring them together to have a sort of dual kind of commentary on... Uh, on itself, the events, um, plus the interpretation of the, those events and so forth. Because most of the show as it progresses is just people trying to interpret, trying to decode the person's next move, uh, trying to work, uh, work out, okay, what is Hearst going to do? What is this person going to do? And so forth and so on. And the series of conversations, effectively, is all that's um, taking, taking place in which the dramatic import in terms of events or actions are actually... Uh, been hugely minimised. It's uh, it's mostly uh, talk. Um, I, I really regret the fact that uh, some of the characters diminished as the series progressed. I think um, Farnham should have been there right mm -hmm. through to the end. Um, he's such a crucial uh, uh, character. Um, he and Richard Cern and some of the others are the equivalent of the Shakespearean fools who have, who have the wisdom in Shakespeare. The people who know in all their their um, their, their comic intent or their insanity, know, know the truth of what's going on. So, and the film has a whole, uh, sorry, the series has a whole um, array of those uh, uh, kinds of characters uh, in it. And some of them sort of drift out, um, I think, a little too much, and others come to the fore and so forth and so on. But um, perhaps they're not as interesting or can carry the show as much as just um, this, this uh, remarkable range of, um, of characters that, that take place. Um, but anyway, that's what it boiled out to be. Balconies, pull of blood, sacrifice, sacrifice <laughs> and so forth and so on. <laughs> so, but anyway, let's open it out to questions. Um, and perhaps I can say more as we, we talk. I think um, uh, I think David Melch is the creator of the series. He wrote the uh, template for it. He would supervise all scripts coming in. Um, he would have had at least the um, uh, the outline of what the first series, first season would be. And all script writers who come in will actually work to a brief. They won't be free just to develop characters or to do as they wish. Actually, we'll have to work with a, with a brief, and I think there is a supervising um, editor. I think her name is uh, um, Julie Cody or something like that. She's credited. So they they monitor and chart the progress of the characters and what's what's occurring. So 
Yeah, the vision obviously belongs to David Milch. I, I presume he created it, he had something in mind and so forth and so on. And, and uh, other scriptwriters just come in and slot in. Um, and if their work doesn't fit the, the brief, they're obviously they're not going to use the screenplays. So. But what amazes me about that is how the writing is so consistent. Um, and so consistent within that sort of Shakespearean, um, biblical, and American writers mm. like Hawthorne at the time, they've kept this style yeah, and managed to maintain it. And yeah. I think to have that amongst a, a body of different writers is really extraordinary. And you'd have mm. to acknowledge that there's um, a level of antagonism around Milch's um, control <laughs> as an auteur over that project that people did want to come in and do the work but did find him fairly difficult because he wanted to have that level of control. But obviously you end up with this beautiful three set that, you know, it's like the same person who's been doing each other side. Mm -hmm. the, the, um, uh, I can't praise the show enough for its dialogue. It really is very, very well written. I don't mean mm -hmm. the plots of the... Just, just some of the exchanges. Uh, mm. The whole thing about theatre comes to its, um, you know, it, if audiences hadn't got it, uh, there's the moment in which the theatrical troupe come to town, you realise, okay, the show's actually marking it quite clearly. And there's a shift once the theatrical troupe comes into town between McShane's character and his best friend, mm. theatrical troupe. And there are exquisite moments of That's exchanges. Lovely, yeah, yeah, quite moments exchange of thoughts between the two, often on the balcony. Um, uh, so, and I mean, theatre also in, in, in the Western often represents the last stage of the progress of a town to civilization. Uh, so you get it in My Darling Clementine, um, Haller and Pink Tights. There's a whole series of Westerns in which one, you know, you get the main street, then you get the sheriff, then you get the church, then you get all these things in place, and you get the school teacher, you get the uh, you get the uh, school school built. Um, the first things that come are um, alcohol, prostitution, saloons, and then finally come the civilizing factors. And then once the theatre arrives, you know that's it. <laughs> you, you've got you've got the movement towards middle class America because effectively that's what theatre will represent is the civilizing or the, the coming of the arts, the civilizing process of humanity. So, yeah. So, do you think having many writers um, produces a higher quality output for, for a long series like that? It seems that it's, a, it's a good recipe mm -hmm. um, and it works. But I, I, I was quite interested in getting a, a gauge of the quality of the writing um, in comparison to novels yep. It would be exhausting to have one person do everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's how television works, usually in film. You have a scriptwriter, and uh, they have their, their, their way of uh, uh, writing, and some of it's extremely distinctive, Tarantino, good or bad. You can recognise a Tarantino script or Tarantino dialogue. So d it can work that way, but when you've got a series that spans three seasons or more, like you know, Sopranos, I think, was six series, and the level of writing was sustained across those six series, um, you're going to have to have multiple writers writing at the same time also. They're not, they're not just, you know, they've just got to keep the scripts churning over so they could shoot each episode and so forth and so on. So, so it's the, qu the pool of writers, I think, you, you draw upon. Um, uh, and you just have to make sure you've got good writers. One thing that's surprising 
hasn't been mentioned in the writings on Deadwood is uh, there's a greater percentage of female scriptwriters yeah. in the show than I, it just surprised me. It's this, I kept looking at the script credits and a woman, and I'm thinking, okay, then another woman, and another woman, and like I think in season two, there's maybe half of the, that season was written by women, and possibly more, possibly two thirds of that uh, thing. So. Um, whether they knew the relevance of the, say, female characters in the series and therefore wanted to bring women in, because uh, mm. you get a feeling that certain, certain episodes, especially those focusing on the prostitutes and their personal conversations with one another or Trixie or whatnot, um, although I think Trixie's a really... I could have strangled that woman. <laughs> I think she should have been the sacrificial victim at the end. That should have cut her throat. You didn't like her. I think she's just one-dimensional. One she, she's just got a cigarette and a grumpy expression on her face from season one to season three and nothing really... There's this interesting modulates. bit in, in Milch's book when he writes about it and she was only supposed to be in... She, each actor talks a little bit about the character and their experience. She was only supposed to be in it, I think, for a couple of okay. eps. And then there was one thing, and they ad-libbed her in Swearingen, where she comes in yeah. to, to see him. Yeah. And she's got um, a blade in her hand. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, you know, do you want me to shave your feet? Yeah. And he shaves the corns off his feet. And he mm. says something like, when you're ready. <laughs> and that was all ad-libbed. And it mm. just... Developed. She said it, it, and it was her. She yeah. wanted to do that because yeah. it would be the ongoing relationship, relationship. between yeah. her and Swearingen and that yeah. um, he, she would be the only person he'd trust with a yeah. razor mm. uh, alone in a room. With it him. is interesting because on some level she's absolutely pivotal to, to the action, yeah. um, but I would agree with you that she is, compared to some of the other characters, much more one-dimensional in the way a Tolliver is and a Seth mm. Bollock is. <laughs> Um, so I, I always think that's quite interesting when you think about that series and I'm not quite sure why or, or how it happens or if it's just the nature of the particular actors, but that she's not particularly developed. Mm. And Bullock, who's such a main kind of driving force yeah. through, through the series as well, he's a very one-dimensional character and so is Tolliver. Mm. And so you always have that kind of, you know, if they had have had another series, we, mm. that's where those people would have got to to really come to life. But mm. I just don't know. Yeah, Seth Bullock's hotel is supposed to be haunted. Mm. The <laughs> real one. That. Oh, David, <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you if you thought that there were any connections with the, um, the Italians, actually, and the spaghetti western tradition actively. Because often there's a lot of bodily grotesque stuff going on there, and also moments of humour. I don't know if I'm the one who finds Deadwood really funny. It is. That really ties into what I was about to say. I don't know if anyone knows, but I've been told that when the um, show was in um, when the show was in development and it was being pitched, they actually pitched it. Land what you were saying about civilization and sacrifices. It was pitched set in Rome. That's right. Yeah. That's and right, then yeah. they were they said, well actually, sounds wonderful, but we've just got this other deal yeah. with a show called Rome. Right. And <laughs> the writers went and the um, the development team said, Oh, um, and they kind of turned to the team and went, oh, well what about what about yeah. Western? Some of it is has the iconography of a, a western, but it, if it, it isn't quite. 
Sorry, so that good. as you go from um, what we've talked about as kind of film genre and we're dealing with a television series so there's just a level of complexity across those you know 12 episodes three series um, that you can deal with that a, a genre film just doesn't normally get around um, so obviously the stuff around the sacrifice is crucial to the to the you know blood sacrifice is absolutely crucial to the genre the Western genre and quite a few other genres as well. But the thing that I think is particularly interesting about this film, and I think it's much more related to the Rome stuff, is that its big investment is in how progress, capitalism, development, etc., um, how law comes to town, which might be a bit of the Western, but the Western kind of stops then. And this is all the, the aftermath. This is, this is colonisation and civilization. And it seems to me that it is much more embedded in the kind of intricacies between um, uh, individuals um, and exchange around those individuals, be it, be it about money or drugs or art women or you know whatever else is going in that particular film. And that becomes the focus. But there's definitely that Western element as well because, you know, this is the place it was, it was born. These are the kind of rituals around card playing guns, um, you know, um, um, being good at those kinds of things. That, that are all those elements of that genre. But I, I still think that that's just a, a cage to kind of put it in and the real interest is in, in commerce. Just go back to the spaghetti westerns. <coughs> the spaghetti westerns did alter the, the genre. The look uh, American, yeah. yeah. American, American, the, the, the progression of the American uh, western fundamentally altered with, uh, with the coming of the spaghetti westerns. Um, uh, interestingly enough, westerns are really um, good for um, single main street town type dramas. <laughs> you mentioned Leone. Fistful of dollars. Eastwood rides into town. You got a mansion on one side of the street, a mansion on the other. It's just that whole balcony thing. He walks down, there's a whole series of characters who will comment on the action. Oh, he's going to his death, blah, blah, blah. You know, just like Deadwood does. And uh, so, so, you know, there is, there is that. But um, I think with, um, you know, probably Deadwood, uh, I mean, um, Terry mentioned Django, for example, and other spaghetti western earlier in, in her talk. Um, but I don't fundamentally think it's it's that close to the uh, the spaghetti westerns. You know, if you think of, if you think about Leone's westerns, they're not they're not really about the coming of civilization to the mm. to the American West. They're, the Italians had an idea of a mythical West in which all sorts of things could take place, and usually they're they're about Italian interests. Let's get the money. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's about three guys who roam the West. There's a civil war on, but essentially they want the pot of gold. You know, that's that's what you know. The Italian spaghetti Western is much more about that. Oh yeah, but that's only his homage to Jean Ford, and that's his allegaic attempt to you know 
go to the Monument Valley and so forth. But it's, it's a great film. There's no doubt about it. But he's not really interested in the coming of the of civilization. It's it's a borrowed theme. What he what he's interested in is the grandeur and the operatic nature of all of that. You know, he's much more interested in like you know Henry Fonda shooting that boy. The beauty of those camera movements and the music. You know, I mean, okay, civilization comes to the west, but Leone's much more interested in the showdown and how you, how you do. You know what I mean? He's this, that's what the spaghetti westerns interested in the, the 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 kinds of themes of the genre they're about the westward progress of American civilization and it's such a different use of space and light yeah, I mean true. Deadwood is such a claustrophobic um, program mm. you know it could almost be on this done on the stage yeah, and yeah, spaghetti yeah. westerns there's this searing light and yeah, this constant space mm. and I think that's a that's a, a yeah. huge visual difference it's not American light anyway it's Spanish light and Italian <laughs> That's where they chose their locations, except for Once Upon a Time in the West, which they went to Monument Valley to, to, to shoot. So, yeah. yeah but, uh, that sort of really comes to mind. Well, um, I really like what you were saying about the whole theatre thing. It's like, and it kind of um, got me when I was watching it because I'm used to Westerns with that, that like Westerns, you know, iconic film language, like even the could use that catch-all word postmodernism and just say, well, yeah. you know, every show is going to be ironical. It knows what it's doing, so why not put that into the show itself? So that, you know, the dual commentary that it has, its ability to sort of stage events and also produce that kind of commentary on it, and have the characters seem like theatrical kind of types from, you know, either Jacobean um, drama or, or Baroque drama. You know that that might be just an effect of our times. Um, a lot of shows are doing it, you know, that level of irony. We know what we're about, type uh, uh, type thing. Um, but um, or whether it's television, that it can do it across uh, an extended period of time. I think we'd be bored shitless if that was a 90-minute theatrical western, which, which we went to the cinema to look at somehow. You, you wouldn't you wouldn't really encapsulate all that kind of you know um, detail of characters like E.B. Barnum, E.B. Farnham wouldn't make it into into um, a feature film because um, his power as a character not his power he's got no power as a character that's partly why he's fantastic is but his uh, character his dimensions actually grow and grow and grow um, uh, as each of the seasons uh, progresses. Um, uh, and I think that's what television can do, uh, whereas film is much more, much more condensed. You know, you, you wouldn't get that array of characters. You know, but uh, so, yeah. Um, just on a side note, Terry, uh, Snatch, also the film, the Guy Ritchie film, features man-eating pigs. For you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but um, it, it's interesting to hear you guys talk about the Western genre, and I've been watching a whole lot of Westerns recently, and I still really appreciate 
um, watching them as an audience member today. And do you think that Deadwood has opened a window for Westerns to keep being made? Or, I mean, just following the discussion at the moment, it feels like the reason why Deadwood is so successful is precisely how it's not, what distinguishes it from the Westerns. But I think the Australian, the, the proposition, that film recently showed us kind of how much the Western still has to, as a genre, has to offer audiences. But what do you guys think? It's a shame that there weren't more series made of Deadwood. <laughs> because I was, and I'm wondering about on that why it stopped, whether they weren't getting the ratings they wanted, whether it wasn't profitable, and the series would have been really expensive, I imagine, to, to make. But I wanted the great fire and the great floods of Deadwood in the fourth, and I'm sure that they were gearing up to it, because in Melcher's book, he certainly seemed to be implying that the series was ongoing. Um, so, I mean, I don't really know. I really think whether it comes in phases or whether it's that particular approach you take on a genre that, that garners a huge audience response to it and, and then reignites the fascination with it. I mean, they sort of, basically the argument is that the, the Western as a genre as such has died and what we have made of are kind of individual films that are Westerns that often take uh, an unusual tract or are often quite long and the argument is the reason they have to be quite long is because the audience isn't a, a fan audience so we have to give them all the information so they understand, you know, what, what the film is actually about. Now, it seems to me, even though the Western's gone, most of us still uh, have a familiarity with the iconography. But um, it does seem that it doesn't have the kind of appeal it used to, or we would assume it would be being made more frequently. But you still constantly, every year, get several quite significant films. And I actually think it's really interesting you brought up the proposition because when you think about the proposition, you think about Deadwood, okay, film and a serial, one is kind of, it's so open compared to the other and in, in a very Australian way, you'd call it thin and I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. Um, in comparison to the kind of incredibly claustrophobic, rich, operatic, baroque elements of a dead wood. Um, but the thing that they do both have in common is, I think, that theatrical performative element, and it's definitely in both of them. Um, I, I'd find it hard... I, I would definitely assume that, say, Nick Cave has seen Deadwood. just seems to make sense to me. Um, <laughs> but the... I, I, I think that... Um, you know, I, I definitely think that those kind of elements, that the performative element that's there and the theatrical element is definitely in the proposition as well. I, I can't say if, if, you know, they saw it or they were definitely influenced by it, but I think it's there. Excuse my English. <laughs> um. You just mentioned that, um, or in the beginning you mentioned um, HBO and uh, watching The Sopranos. Um, so for me personally, um, Twin Peaks um, yeah. marked <laughs> oh, <laughs> <being> already <laughs> yeah. um, marked a shift in paradigm for uh, for a television series, sure. and it's it's taking the it's taking the space that a series is offering mm. and applying all the movie concepts. 
and the quality and the budgets and the theatrical qualities of uh, the actors mm -hmm. and putting into something new. So I'm asking myself, when I look at something like The Sopranos or I think you have Breaking Bad coming up ne next month uh, or uh, Six Feet Under, a series like that, we, we call them series, just if they, they were some kind of, you know, Dallas or Dynasty or Coronation Street, <laughs> and there's something very different about it. So I ask myself if there's another label that we could uh, attach to, to that. I have friends who don't watch things like that, Deadwood because they are literary persons and they think it's a series. So it's not, it doesn't have the kind of, you know, depth to it. I think series like those have it. And I'm looking for a different kind of labels and having the opportunity of having experts sitting <laughs> here. Do you have a there is a key word that we use at work called intertexturality <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that really came out with Twin Peaks. And you know, when it first came out, I loved that show. I even did a pilgrimage to Twin Peaks, to the cafe up there. And it had burnt down the day before I went. And oh, it was, I'll tell you this. And there was a gift shop right beside the, the cafe and I went in, this girl, I swear she looked exactly like Laura Palmer. And I said, do you know what happened? And she said, I don't know what happened, but I know who did it. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't pay for that kind of performance, it was wonderful. But I think in, in Twin Peaks it was sort of like guessing where this came from, what film did this come from, where did this actor come from? And Lynch is like that in all of his. I think all of his work, he's kind of in, in, and he tweaks different kinds of psychology, he taps different kinds of mythology, and he taps different actors. Like, so in Twin Peaks, a lot of actors were called in from soap operas. Uh, and, it was, and then you didn't know when it first came out, what genre is this? And I think that's the first of that kind of type of television, which is now quite normal for us. But it was groundbreaking then because it was very displacing, and that's a very risky thing to do. Uh, around the time, not of Twin Peaks was an isolated sort of beacon when it came out. Nobody thought of television that way, so it took the weird mind of David Lynch to conceive of something that would work on television, and, and it did. But um, the after effects after the after effects of it, are, um, I think, are still being felt. The sort of the ripples of uh, Twin Peaks, but I would put Deadwood. Um, Sopranos, The Y, in a different uh, category than uh, Twin Peaks, I think. Um, the, uh, definitely at the time The Sopranos and Deadwood were on, there was, a, there was quite a bit of debate in film journals that, uh, in fact, now the best writing was taking place in television. It wasn't, it wasn't taking place in cinema anymore. The films didn't have the complexity of these TV um, series. Uh, so I think they, they should, I mean, I don't know who your friends are, but in fact, <laughs> a, a lot of the movie going public has actually moved across to watching these sorts of shows now because the cinema just can't give them the dose of what they need. When you've got something like The Wire, which is just extraordinarily you know, complex, uh, look at, at how a city, like for them, Baltimore, but it could be Deadwood. That's the thing. It could be New, New Jersey. That's, they're all doing the same thing. Deadwood, The Sopranos, The Wine, a few others. They're basically interested in America. They're interested in different phases of American history, and they're interested in different ideas about you know, American malehood. And 
uh, Mad, um, Mad Men, not HBO, same, same thing. It's, it's an advertising agency, but you look at it carefully and you realise, okay, you know, all these shows, there's, there's, there's a whole body of them that are focusing on one particular thing. Um, so, uh, and they've all been praised because of the, you know, the quality of the, the writing, you know. Um, Sorry, you've just yeah. also um, had, uh, you know, it used to be if a film actor ended up on television, it was because, you know, their career yeah. was over as such, whereas now, you know, they're dying to be in television series uh, of that kind of quality. <laughs> and uh, I came up with a word, serial movies. Oh yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Except that's you have no. It won't work only because there there, there are things that are called serial movies, but that, they're the matinee movies of the 1940s, 30s, where people went to the cinema and saw Buck Rogers episode right, before the feature, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so there was that tradition. And we look at them now, and they're incredibly boring. You know, so if you give them that name, serial movies, people are thinking, oh, God, not something like that. But, I uh, think the HBO tag works a, a yeah, little bit it's, like it's that, though. It's, it's not television, no, it's HBO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that all, it's like a, a gold stamp, sort of, that says, right, well, if it's HBO, so it's quality. Yeah, I think they promote themselves that way, too. Yeah. That it's HBO, you know, not the news, home box office, not TV, home box which home box office. Box office is associated with the cinema, not with television. There's no such thing as a box office at the cinema. So their, their creation of that name, you can see them thinking, let's get away from this idea of television. You know, so. I was just going to say, um, I reckon that HBO is on a bit of a mission to promote You also get that, oddly enough, on soap operas. If you watch it long enough, <laughs> you do see these characters do a full circle of um, sort of different shades of them. They're like prisms with light in different areas. Yeah, but it takes but, uh, ten years for that arc. <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth it, Rolandus. <laughs> Deadwood ending the way that it ends on in such a feeling of expectation and, and an anti-climax almost, you know, as if there had to be a, a fight between the hearse and Swearington's game. Do you believe that that sort of, the way it ends adds something to the experience of the series as a whole, that it doesn't necessarily answer all the questions? Or do you find that after watching it and end the way it does, uh, ultimately be more of an unfeeling uh, unfulfilling experience. I've watched the final one and I was dying for the next one. I just didn't didn't seem like an end to me at all. And maybe when they were you know when they were making it they didn't think it was going to be the end. 
but it also leaves you, yeah, it does leave you with a kind of emptiness. As, but it's like they say, you know, if you come into Deadwood, you never get out alive. I don't think I've ever got out of Deadwood in my head <laughs> alive. So, what do you think? Um, I, I was just, uh, one thing I have to say is I absolutely love it and I've said it quite a few times, but I remember I did find that first episode very hard to crack um, because, and I think it's that it's, it's sort of so Baroque and you've got so much of Calamity Jane and I was dying to just put the subtitles on so I could understand what she was saying. Um, and so uh, what I want to say is the first time I watched all the way through to the end, I felt that that last series was thinner around, I know you, it's crazier on some level, but I found it less rich and I found it less rich I think because it was more focused on the mechanics of the story around the kind of battle between uh, Hearst's development progress and, and Swear Engine's kind of smaller, more local version of that. And then I have to say, the second time I watched it, it seemed to me that the ending, although it's still quite ambig ambiguous, it was inevitable through the progression of the three series that that is where you'd end up. So, and probably if I go home and watch it now, I'll have a completely different experience again, yeah. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with uh, Gabriel. Um, partly season three is essentially strategizing between Hearst and um, Swearingen. That's really what it's about. Uh, and you can see them trying to keep it going um, by subplot uh, threads, which really don't do anything. They don't, they don't bring anything to the, to the show. They're just distracting us from the fact that the main sort of trunk of the plot is now basically strategising between two individuals who can't do anything against one another, can only do random acts around one another mm. because eventually they want to come to a pact and there will be a compromise. As everybody knows, it's a company of a corporate capitalism and so you know, you know an agreement will take, take place. It always did historically. Um, so yeah, it's a sort of almost a stalemate situation. Uh, uh, there, so, um, um, but the ending, um, the ending, the ending itself is a little bit. I know it's it's different, but um, you know where the Sopranos went with that really quiet ending in the in the cafeteria with the family, and you're just sitting there, and you're in absolute moment of dread because every time the door opened, you you thought, okay, he's going to get a bullet in the head or character walk by, and yet all you've got is a family that are sharing french fries or something. Um, uh, and everybody thought, well, that's completely anticlimactic. But in fact, it, it made perfect sense. It was a perfect ending uh, to the series. And I think Deadwood is him, um, Owl, scrubbing the pool of blood. Uh, and that's the... You get that in series one and you don't really understand what the full implication of it is when he does it because it's the woman he calls the gimp, the, the disabled woman, is scrubbing it. And he says, get out of here. I clean up my own blood. Nobody else gets scrub blood like me. And you realise, okay, that's the whole series. <laughs> and, um, and then it brings you back to that, that pool of blood 
of the sacrificial victim is incredibly important and why um, Al understands the meaning of the symbolism of all these cutthroats, that they're leading to something. They're not arbitrary acts of, you know, you just killed somebody, which is Tolliver's idea, that they are actually, that blood is precious and he needs to clean it. It's like his penance, you know, in a sense. And so that, that image of a man on his knees scrubbing that prostitute's blood, I think is, is a really fitting conclusion. At least for me, anyway. It's interesting too that, that in that last series it took the women to get rid of Hurst. I don't think yeah. he would have gone yeah. if Elmer hadn't signed over her claim That's and right. Trixie hadn't shot him. And you know, these two guys are at loggerheads mm. and it's these women that mm. oust him. such a gritty in the dirt and the shit and the blood and then Rolando looking for the dog <laughs> that's our two characters <laughs> gender readings I liked it. thank you so much and thank you uh, to you the audience you've been an excellent a really nice gutsy Q&A and to Jay up in the bio box um, I